So it's not so much of a plan, but a brainstorm of how your life might play out given three different timelines that you could consider. How come, it's like a bug in the human system, how we redesign as human beings. How come we still don't act on the things that we know we should be? No plan ever survives first contact with reality. Hi, my name's Rafa, and I love coming up with excuses to talk to interesting people. In my experience as an events host and interviewer, I've always considered it the best practice to do my homework in advance and control the flow of the discussion. But what if it didn't always have to be that way? What if we could do it freestyle? Every episode, I bring on someone interesting, let them deep dive onto any topic of their choice, and try my best to keep up. Whatever we may lack in preparation and polish, I hope we more than make up for in raw curiosity. This week, we're ditching the script and jumping straight in as Jody Chua tells us about how planning your life can help you wing it. Welcome to Freestyle. Hello, welcome back to our show. And today we have a very wonderful guest, Mr. Jody Chua joining us. Jody, can you please introduce yourself without telling us what your job is? Oh, well, that's a very fair way to put it. My name is Jody. I'm a good friend of Rafa's. We go way back to grade school, I believe. And it's very uh, accurate for you to say without my job because I don't have one as of the moment. <laughs> yeah, maybe I should have thought about that before asking that question. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so yeah. much for joining me, Jody. If you guys don't know listening to this, this interview is actually happening at 6 a.m. Well, 6.52 Hopefully, both of us are morning people. That will be put to the test today. Anyway, Jody, when I first reached out to you, you had a very interesting topic that you wanted to deep dive on today. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, for sure. So recently, while in quarantine, I came across this new concept called life design. And it sent me down this rabbit hole of videos, articles, and materials, which I went over. And I didn't even realize that it was something I was already in the middle of doing until I discovered it. So I thought that would be something cool to talk about at six in the fudging morning. <laughs> yep. Sounds like a perfect topic. I think if you're at the point where you're up at six every day, your life is to some extent designed. So Jody, can you tell us a bit about what life design is in a nutshell? Sure. Well, I'm no expert, but the way I understand it, uh, life design is the process of using design tools, and concepts, and techniques. Basically, you're thinking like a designer to live your life with more intent, uh, planning out how your life might look like five to ten years uh, down the line. That's fascinating. You know, I remember back when we were actually still going to school and we took that elective on user experience design. So is it kind of like that, but you're the user all the time? Yeah, that's actually a good way to put it. User-centered design. Yeah, because I, I think one of the materials I went through, uh, they really stress the human-centered, human-centricness of the process. Because obviously, the, the biggest project we could work on is our lives. I guess when you say designing your life, is that any different from you know, simply saying that I have goals, I plan my life out? Because people have been saying that for the longest time. What is the unique element of incorporating design thinking? into setting up your life. Yeah, it's so great you mentioned design thinking. So the, the thing about it is they, they use the word plan very loosely in the life design process. Because when they mention plan, it's not so much about planning your life so you know what to expect at every beat. 
because it would it would defeat the entire purpose. They have a saying that goes, uh, "Planning is everything, but the plan is nothing." So it's not so much of a plan, but a brainstorm of how your life might play out, given three different timelines that you could consider. I'm using the Odyssey plan as a framework because recently one of my good friends shared with me this, this cool thing called the Odyssey plan, which is actually what sent me down the rabbit hole that I mentioned earlier. The output of it is it's three separate five-year timelines and one 10-year timeline comes from the three. And there's a bunch of elements included in these timelines, like uh, a visual graphical representation of uh, what you might want to do in X number of years, a, a symbol to represent uh, the spirit of this plan, and even a thank you note for, from yourself, telling your current self from the future, thanking you for designing this plan for you. Wow. Okay. And I want to zoom into something that you said, not just because we're in Zoom, okay, but you <laughs> mentioned that planning's everything, but the plan itself is nothing. So what do you mean, like in the context of the Odyssey plan? What happens when things don't go according to that plan that you've set up for yourself? Oh my gosh, I bet that is usually the case for people who try out this whole Odyssey plan framework. There is an extension of that quote, which I really resounded with. And it goes like this. No plan ever survives first contact with reality. No plan is an island. No plan is an island. You keep building on it. <laughs> but no, no plan exists in isolation. Like I think at the point where you come up with a plan, it exists exclusively in your head. But once it makes contact with reality, as you said, once it's exposed to all these horrible or wonderful external factors, suddenly the plan takes on a whole different nature. And I think that's actually why the number is three. Like why you have to come up with three separate five-year timelines that have to be distinct. It can't be... Plan A is I want to work for ad agency A. Plan B, I want to work for ad agency B. That's kind of the same thing, just said, but told differently. When right. we say three different timelines, it has to be distinct and unique. And to answer your question, what if one plan doesn't go as planned, no pun intended? That's why you have other options. So you can explore where you might want to go in case the first one doesn't go out as planned. I see. So it's like you've created, let's say, over the next five years, you've created three alternate versions of Jody, who could all be existing. And is it, do you do one timeline at a time? Or is it possible to switch over between these three timelines as time goes by? Like you're just changing tracks. I like what you mentioned about how there's like three versions of Jody or three versions of Rafa. Because if you think about it, there are different versions of ourselves that we could choose to live right. depending on how we, the decisions we make today. So there's like uh, X number of future versions of the people that we know and the person that we are. It's not so much of switching gears, but assessing every how many so years, whether or not the plan you're going with is going the way you want it to. And if ever it's not, then you could reassess and make a new one or choose an old one, which you put to the side. Right. So basically, instead of having a one-track mindset to how you want your life to be that, in five years, I'm going to be doing X, and 10 years, I'm going to be doing Y, and by the ripe age of 80 years old, I'm going to be doing Z. Instead, you have yeah. all these possible timelines, which grants you flexibility and I'm guessing makes you a lot more comfortable with change than if you were just on a one-track kind of plan. You mentioned change, and that is actually their, their one biggest guideline for this whole life design process or Odyssey plan process. So people ask when they're supposed to make one of these things. And the, the cookie-cutter answer is you're supposed to make it when there's a need to. Okay. Preferably when you're undergoing periods of rapid change, like like you and I, 
fresh grads from college. You know, like this whole idea is very interesting to me because when I was growing up at least, maybe this is because of my, you know, growing up in an Asian family which set high expectations and you're always <laughs> asked to live up to those, no? Like people tended to teach me the idea of planning and goal setting as non-negotiable. And I think it's a tricky conversation because on one hand, you do need some kind of degree of commitment to your goals, right? Like say, if I commit to right. do something at the end of the month, let's say I want to have a six-pack, not a feasible goal, by the way, but say I wanted to have a six-pack, you do need some kind of integrity to that goal saying, I will stick to it, I will deliver. But on the other hand, coming from the perspective that you're talking about, we, to some extent, should have an accommodation for when our goals are no longer viable or when they seem to change. Is that correct? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. There has to be a constant reevaluation process, whether or not you're, you're, you're making the right, quote-unquote, decisions per day to lead you to the direction that you want to. Where would you stand on that point? How do you make the judgment call between saying, being very stuck to your goals, saying, okay, we got to see this through because I said it was going to happen, versus being willing to change those goals. Because on one hand, if you're overly willing to change, then what's the point of setting a goal if they have no mm. tangibility to them, if they have no integrity over time? On the other hand, if you're not willing to move your goals, well, we know the consequences of that. You set these goals that either aren't, aren't feasible or are not adaptive. So what do you think is a healthy balance or compromise between those two things? I think the compromise comes in how low or how high you're setting the bar for yourself. Because I can't tell you for for your goals how you want to set the bar. That would defeat the entire purpose because it's your goals. Right. We're going by your criteria, the person who's achieving a certain number of goals. Right. And I guess bring it back to this whole idea of coming up with a five-year plan or even three five-year plans. The important thing is that the goals are your own, especially in our culture. I don't know if you'll agree with me, but from my experience at least, I think I've grown up in a situation where many of the early goals I had weren't my own when I go back to look at them. Exactly, which is actually why I think I was very fascinated when I stumbled on this whole life design process because it really struck a chord. It really struck a heartstring of mine and maybe you too that, hey, I think this is something useful and relevant for me, given the circumstances that I was dealt with. Yeah, and given that these plans have multiple timelines, now that we're in the middle, we just passed the 200th day of this pandemic in the Philippines. Would you say we're in the darkest timeline right now? Like, are we on track number four of Jody's plan? <laughs> or have we reached the end of the alphabet, plan Z? <laughs> I, I, I would say to some extent, which is... Maybe why these kinds of things like life design uh, should be something that we're considering doing. Because especially now, you mentioned it, 200th day into quarantine. That's wild, first of all. It's insane. But also, it's insane. Absolutely insane. But to add to that, the fact that people like us, we're, we're undergoing rapid periods of change. Because again, we just got fresh out of college. And you put those two things together, it's a recipe for disaster. But more than that, it's a recipe for getting stuck. And I feel like a lot of people get stuck at critical moments in their life, like now, uh, which is another big reason to add to why I was so fascinated by this whole concept of uh, living your life with more intention and knowing that what you're doing now is going to be inherited by your future self. Exactly. I mean, there are always jokes, right? That like you're working on an assignment, you decide to go to sleep because you're bone tired and you say, that's a problem for future Jody. Well, guess what? Future Jody is you, right? And I want to zoom into this 
See, there's that Zoom metaphor again. But I want to zoom into this one thing you said, which I found interesting. This is going a bit on a tangent, but you mentioned two things. You said, we're in a time that can be considered a disaster, but yeah. more importantly, it's a time where you get stuck. And I just thought of that now. You know, when you ask people, what is disaster? What is chaos in your life or in your plan? People tend to define it in two ways, which are polar opposites. The more common one that I hear is a disaster is change. People who say, if my way of life suddenly changes or my situation suddenly changes, then it's a personal disaster for me. But what I'm more interested in is what you're talking about now, where for you, getting stuck can also be a disaster. I would say so. I, I think uh, lying on any extreme on the spectrum is bound to set you up for disaster. Getting stuck or undergoing too much change, like you said. Uh, I know we talk a lot about balances and complementarities a lot whenever we're, we're, we're talking with our theology professors, especially. <laughs> right. And sometimes I begin to wonder, is that a myth? Is, is going for the happy middle a myth? Or is that actually something achievable? But I remember talking to this with precisely one of my theology professors the other day. And he said, hmm, balance is not so much of a myth because maybe our definition about it is a bit off. Balance is, isn't necessarily about being in the, uh, the strictly the, the center of two polarities. But rather, balance is finding the right measure given the circumstances that we're in. I'll build on that point because you're talking about how our very idea of balance might be unbalanced. I would argue that the value of balance isn't really in the being exactly in the center, like you said. But I would say the value of balance is more in the exercise of it, of finding balance, of recalibrating constantly. And I think the more interesting implication of what we're talking about, I love that you use the metaphor of a spectrum, right? Between constant change and stagnation, right? And the healthy middle is somewhere in between that. That the right mix isn't complete stability or complete change, but somewhere in between, right? Where you have things which are core to you, which are stable that you can go back to. But at the same time, there's also an element that's constantly changing based on the scenario. Oh yeah, I think that's entirely what it is. Uh, but it, sometimes it leads me to wonder because we know all these things, what we just talked about. Especially right. with the, the whole intention thing. But how come, it's like a bug in the human system, how we were designed as human beings. How come we still don't act on the things that we know we should be? Right. Like we can talk about life design this entire morning. And if I don't act on it, then we will be nowhere closer to my life being designed, right? Exactly. I'm pretty sure somebody who is listening to this is going to hear us uh, ramble about life design and the whole balance myth. Like, those guys don't have their life together. Hey, what, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, he just said he doesn't have a job at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> could be part of your plan. <laughs> okay, could be. We don't know, right? The pieces aren't complete. Yeah, it got me thinking. Uh, as, as much as I am uh, enthralled by this whole concept that I stumbled on, I think personally that I'm, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job at it, which we could get to later. But how come, generally speaking, a lot of people struggle in getting stuck and not figuring out a way to get out of that? Right. Well, drawing from my own experience, when I get stuck, mine is usually paralysis by analysis. Like I tend oh. to get stuck when I have too many options or I'm facing a situation which is very, very complex. And I get so caught up thinking about the particularities of it that I'm not able to act on it. So for me, that's it at least. I would also say that's why frameworks are very useful to me personally. Because when you talk about design, um, I think some element of that is that they're frameworks, systems, heuristics, whatever you call it, a decision-making yeah. process. Uh, designers use a lot of flowcharts, for example. Like when we did 
um, user experience design class. We oh, used yeah. certain worksheets to summarize a very complex user journey or user profile into something actionable. So for me, at least, that's what helps me when I get stuck, trying to find a useful framework that I can apply to kind of force myself to act on it and make a decision instead of just juggling all of the possibilities. If, if for you, you get stuck because of analysis paralysis, I think I get stuck because of too much ambition, too much idealistic thought. Interesting. So it's kind, it's kind of similar to what you said because I'm also uh, overwhelmed by all these things flooding in into my mind, all the possibilities that I could pursue and chase after. Would you say that what we're talking about now between the two of us, is that representative of most of the population? Because that was your first question. If you're talking about general population, I'm not one to speak for everybody, but I would say there is some similarity, some sense of overwhelmedness to it uh, and not knowing what decisions have to be taken to address the most urgent problems. We had a previous talk, the three-hour one. Do you remember that? And one of the points oh, yeah. I talked about is how in my personal mindset, People having more options is good. And suddenly I'm reevaluating yeah. that. To some extent, choice is a matter of privilege. Like as a blanket statement, you could say, the more choices a person has, the more good choices a person has especially, the more privileged they are or the better off they are. That's why um, in certain indexes, for example, happiness for GDP index, if a person has very limited choices or only one choice, they're considered to be under the poverty line in terms of happiness. Uh, that's how they, one of the measures of happiness GDP, number of options available to a person. However, if you bring it to the other extreme, if you have too many options, suddenly you get stuck. And that's interesting, right? Because you would consider yourself stuck in both situations. Like if you're a person with only one choice, you'd say, I'm stuck. I can only choose this. But on the other hand, if I give you 10,000 options, you're stuck just thinking about it. So again, like we have the spectrum. It turns out you can get stuck at both ends. And it makes you numb. If you find yourself on either end, it makes you numb to even making the decision in the first place. I, if I remember correctly, one of the steps in the process is something called mindfulness. Uh, you have to come up with so many ideas, brainstorming. Right. But at other points in the process, you have to focus on just one. And that's a challenge. You have to be mindful to realize where you are in the process so that you won't get overwhelmed. I'm going to borrow a quote from you that from our three-hour conversation the other week. But yeah, what, what you said during that three-hour call of ours the other week is to compromise from the top, not bottom. So it is, to some extent, good to start with all these things laid on in front of you so you know what you have to narrow down on. If we're talking about compromise, I think it comes in the acceptance of the availability of the many OKs far outweighs the attainment of the one and only best. I see. So... There's like a almost ideal, or if we want to use philosophical terms, like there's like a platonic ideal of what your life is like, right? There is a high sure. ideal, like there's a Jody Prime, right? That we wish we could be at. But at the same time, sure. there are all these other versions of you or states you could be in, which are acceptable to you, but not necessarily okay. the dream. The best. Yeah, exactly. But the first thing, the, the former, the, the prime version of you, uh, I think is unattainable. Like, that's an ideal. We go back to the idea of ideals, which is why you have to accept that these, the availability of the many OKs, the many averages, is I think something we have to come to terms with because if they all add up, it would actually make, a, make for a good contender. Right. And I think that the interesting implication of this is that even though it's unreachable, there is still value in having that idea of a prime, right? If you didn't have a dream, then you wouldn't move in a direction, right? You know, it, it reminds me of this other thing that uh, I was asking my friend. Because the other week, 
I, I, just, I actually just recently concluded this mini project of mine uh, where I reached out to 15 incredibly smart people from six different fields. And I asked them about career discernment, social impact, and how those two relate. So one of the friends I was talking to, uh, he, he's very involved in the development sector. Right? right. And I asked him about the stigma regarding social good. I asked him, does doing social good really come at great personal sacrifice? Or is, or is that something you can debunk? This is a hero and, complex kind of thing you're talking about. Exactly, exactly. And I will never forget what he answered. He said, doing social good only comes at great personal cost if you're not willing to reimagine what comfort looks like. So it goes back to what we were saying earlier about how it's good to aspire for something that you know is unattainable because then you're changing your definition of what you can and cannot do. It's a mindset thing. How we define the, the state we're currently at or how the state defines uh, what we believe in. I would argue the default state is that the circumstances tend to define you. But the state oh, yeah. that we all aspire for is that we get to the point where we can, we can define the circumstances. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because when we're growing up, people call it the sponge years. Right. Like your most formative years when you were a child. But to your point, you come to a certain age where you can now decide for yourself whether or not the things you absorb are things you want to keep bringing with you to your adolescent years or your adulthood years. Right. And that's uh, why we have a lot of batchmates who will say, I'm unlearning these toxic traits from my childhood. Or I'm unlearning what my idea of perfection or being valid validated was from my childhood. And I'm taking on this new definition now that I'm an adult, right? I really applaud people who can come to terms with that. But on the flip side, uh, I think the larger majority still struggle. But I think that the, the former is something that we should really aspire for because that is possible. That you could rewrite all the things that you thought you knew and put your own twist to it. Right. At a certain point in your life, growing up is equally a process of learning and unlearning. Probably in these years we're in, right? And maybe up to our 30s or 40s. Oh, yeah. And then you probably get to that age where it solidifies a bit and you start dispensing information. Like you're the person teaching now, um, asking in 50 years. I don't know if that's true. Oh, yeah. And, you know, now all the things we're talking about are starting to coalesce in a way, right? Because oh the, the talk about options came up. The talk about balance came up. The uh -huh. Life design came up. It's starting to converge, right? If you think about it, life design, or even the exercise of thinking about, what am I going to do next, right? It's an exercise of choosing options. Even if you look at human freedom, for example, like let's say you, you have a day free and you can do whatever you want, you're still technically choosing from options. I mean, you might have a million options, but life in general is just an option-picking exercise. That sounds so sad, right? It's like a big social experiment. But you could generalize it that way, right? On a day-to-day -day basis, you make tens of thousands of choices, minimal and big. Your responsibility then is to look at all these choices, find a healthy amount, and then pick from among that. That's really just what it is, isn't it? Uh, not to put too much pressure on yourself because no one choice or decision is going to set you for the rest of your life. You're still going to have tons of more decisions to make after the one that you have to make right now. So I think if we alleviate the pressure off our shoulders, it makes us more comfortable making a decision right now. Yeah. And I think what muddies that equation a little bit is that life is not an input-output machine. What I mean by that is that mm. when you make a choice in life, it's not like a vending machine, right? Like if you press Coke, you get Coke. If you get Royal or True Orange or Fanta, you get Fanta, right? There is a mixture of probabilities that when you make a certain choice, 
it could go in any number of directions. And those might be known to you, and they might not. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of a push and pull, a tug of, a tug of war, if you will, uh, between A, if, if you declare what you want to get in life and out of the world, you're, if you're announcing what you want to do in, in your bucket list, you're, you're kind of giving the world an opportunity to give you what you want. But on the other side of things, the world doesn't owe you anything. So it doesn't matter what you demand from it because it, it's not obligated to give you what you want. You know, there's a, there's a fantastic quote here from the philosopher Hannah Arendt. She said a great thing. She said, humans are in such a crap scenario. Okay, she didn't say that, but I'm summarizing here. Paraphrasing. Paraphrasing. She said, we're in such a crappy scenario if you think about it because we're stuck between a past that we can no longer change and a future that we have only a limited degree of control over. So therefore, there are only two ways that humans can influence their own existence, making promises and forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only way you can change the past. And making promises and committing to them, making and keeping promises is the only way we can hold any degree of sway over the future. That is absolutely phenomenal. I'm going to put that on a plaque now above my bed rest. Yeah, promises and forgiveness, past and present, both addressed. Like it sounds very Christian, but even from, let's say, a non-theological standpoint, it does make a degree of sense. It really does. It really does. Yeah, and when you think about Hannah Arendt's background specifically, she went through Nazi Germany. So that was the context, the horrible context she was coming from, right? And imagine being able to make that statement after coming out of that situation, to talk about forgiveness when you've gone through such atrocities and to talk about keeping promises and hope, even in such a bleak time, post-war, right? And I like to think that she came up with that quote uh, from a place of acceptance of the problem that she has to deal with. Uh, because if we go back to the design thinking process, I know that the first step is to empathize and define what the problem is. But I think sometimes we're, we're, we're forgetting a preliminary step that precedes all the other steps, which is to accept that this is a problem that you want to deal and work with. Because if you don't even get across that bridge, then the conversation shouldn't even be started. That Yeah, we need to talk about the problem. And then I'll take it a step further and say, then what do you do about it? Because I think that life requires a certain degree of acceptance as much as it requires a certain degree of stubbornness, right? My favorite prayer... Um, is the prayer of serenity, right? Lord, give me the serenity to accept the things I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I, I think in particular, what really strikes me about that is the, the third and final line. I think that's the crux of the whole discernment process, isn't it? Right. To distinguish. Once again, the healthy space is somewhere in between. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, all we've been talking about is theory, and that's something that my mom uh, critically accuses me of on a daily basis. So Jody, you've been doing a lot of theory stuff. You've been talking to people, asking for their feedback, but it's all theory. Where's the bias to action here? Even if you do the whole design process, if you look into it, we've been talking about, doesn't matter if you don't go out there and try things. To bring it back, even if the plan ends up being useless, right? The planning is still of value. Because now that I think about it, the plan and the design is the promise. To say oh my, gosh, that my life will be in this way in the future or any of these three ways is a promise to yourself and a promise to the world even. You're making a commitment by, making, by even going through the exercise of making a design. You're making a commitment to carrying out the plan or all of the versions of the plan, whatever is applicable. And, and even if it doesn't go according to plan, 
at least it gives you this feeling of readiness, readiness to engage, this kind of armor of confidence that I thought about all these things on my plan. And even if I know it's not going to go according to plan, at least I have some contingencies that we could work with. All right. You know, this has been a very fascinating conversation, like, but I think we have to anchor it, right? Like all the stuff we've been talking about. Sure. What is the action point? What is the bias to action over here? What is our call? For me, it, it comes with figuring out what is your end game. I like talking about end games a lot because I feel like thinking about how the end looks like, end of your career, end of your life, you name it, whatever, gives you a sense of clarity of how you live forward towards that end game. Because then if you have a clear picture of how you want to end things, everything you're going to be doing today, tomorrow, next week, next month, uh, it gives you an opportunity to align that with your end game. And if the answer is yes, then I think you're on the right track. Uh, and that is as clear as an action point as I could give to anybody who's probably in the same stuckness that you and I are going through. It, it, it goes against the, the, the stigma that everything only makes much more sense in retrospect. Right. But there's no choice but to live forward because you can't live backwards. Right. And while hindsight is twenty twenty. You can never have hindsight if you never left from your point of origin. Yeah, that's exactly it. I think that, if anything, right, we can never promise ourselves or we can never expect that life will go as we plan it. We can never expect that the choice we make will lead to the outcome that we think it will. Not 100% of the time, never. And we can never quite expect that we will get what we want. And I don't mean that in a cynical way, but it might be that what we want will take on a different form when we finally achieve it than what we initially conceived. And I think being okay with that is part of the process. However, the exercise of planning, of design thinking, of designing your life, of the Odyssey plan is still of value, even in a world we can't change because it's a promise and a commitment towards the future. It's us telling ourselves that I have control of my life in the next five years. And even when I don't, we have plans B to Z. And even past plan Z, we'll start using numbers or two letters like Excel does. Or other languages like the Greek alphabet. Oh, yeah. You know, once I'm on plan theta, I think I'll need some help. Uh, Well, definitely the main takeaway is whenever you have conversations like this, you will arrive at more questions than you had answers. And it, it just takes a process of due diligence. Like you said, the other day, giving yourself a hard time whenever you're confronted with two things that you have to choose between, two goods even, which makes things even harder. Wonderful. I'm going to end with another quote because I don't have any original thoughts. German poet (laughs) Rainer Maria Rilke once said, to live the questions. I mean, it's a very simple line, but it's my favorite quote because if we let ourselves just think about the questions, if you let yourself just get caught up in the questions and get stuck, then there's no time for a living, right? But at the same time, we want answers. So live the questions, and one day, hopefully, some distant day, we will live our way into the answer. Jody, I have one last question for you before we wrap up this episode. Shoot. What is the title of this episode? Oh, yes. I have a, I have a perfect one. I have a perfect one. The title of this episode is How Planning for Your Life Allows You to Wing It. <laughs> All right. That's been Jody Chua. You just listened to how planning for your life allows you to wing it. Thanks for listening in. I hope you have something to complicate your discussion, your internal discussion today. And hopefully, 
even though we can't control our lives, we can at least take a step closer to designing them. Thanks for listening and thanks for coming, Jody. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks, Rafa. This was fun.